Well, Ezra chapter 4 is the kind of passage they warn you about in seminary when they say expository preaching is a good thing, right? But if you do that, you go through the Bible book by book, chapter by chapter, you're inevitably, inevitably going to come up against what we call hard passages, okay? Hard passages. And not so much hard because they're difficult to interpret, although there are some like that. Ezra 4, I don't think, fits into that category. Uh, but hard because they're difficult to hear. Difficult to hear. Um, they're countercultural. There, there are some texts in the Bible that are definitely countercultural. This is one of them. And it can be offensive to preach passages like this. It can be offensive to hear passages like this if we really just talk faithfully about what they're saying. Um, so that's that's a, a, a little setup for where we're headed this morning. All right, um, I'm trusting that God is going to really encourage and equip us. And and if you're offended this morning, I trust that God would be doing the offending uh, in order to draw you to Himself. That's what He does. The gospel is offensive, but the gospel is life giving at the same time. So let me let me uh, again just sort of recap where we're at. Ezra one and two, when we started off a couple weeks ago, uh, introduced us to a a second or a new Exodus uh, for God's people in the Old Testament. The first Exodus, of course, being under the leadership of Moses, right? When God led the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt, they'd been in captivity there for four hundred years, and through Moses brought them out uh, and uh, towards ultimately under the leadership of Joshua into the land that he had promised to give them, the promised land. Uh, the second exodus, though, is taking place about a thousand years later. That was Moses' exodus was about 1450, give or take, BC. Uh, now we're in the kind of the 500s BC, uh, the end of the 500s, and even spilling into the beginning of the 400s BC, and we're seeing really kind of a, a, a second incarnation of the exodus. God's people have been held captive again. They've been exiled out of that land that God had given to them because of their sin. They'd been dispersed, conquered, uh, really, by two different kingdoms, two different empires. The northern half of Israel had been conquered by the Assyrians uh, in seven, the 700s B.C. And then later, uh, about 150 years later, in the beginning of the 500s B.C., the southern part of the kingdom, Judah, was conquered by the Babylonians. And the prophecies were that after 70 years, they would be able to come back. And so this is what we're doing in Ezra. This is the coming back, the return under the leadership. This first uh, part of that under Zerubbabel. Uh, it's a second exodus. It's coming back into the land that God promised them. And there's very, uh, there's a lot of similarities in the, the two scenes. They're coming into a, the promised land. It's occupied by, you know, others who are, who are ungodly and they've got to contend with that. Yet again, they've got to, uh, pursue the presence of God uh, in their midst. Uh, we're seeing it happen all over again. And, and then Ezra chapter 3 told us last week that their first priority when they got back into the land was not to worry about building their houses so much or, or getting jobs, but it was to rebuild the altar of God that had been destroyed when the Babylonians had sacked Jerusalem. They, they had destroyed the temple they destroyed the altar. Everything that was associated with the worship of God's people in Israel had been laid to waste. And so their first priority was to rebuild that altar so they could reestablish right worship with God. It was a, it was a picture of their revival 
Right? Their sin had exiled them. The mercy of God had brought them back. And it was revival. It was, it was a renewal of their commitment to the Word of God, the centrality of what we said last week was the cross of Christ, but in their state, the sacrificial system. Confessing their sins, being forgiven. That was their first priority. Uh, they, know, they knew that they needed to be near to God. And they began then at the end of chapter 3 to not only rebuild the altar, but to rebuild the temple. Because they knew that they needed the presence of God in their midst. So that's where we're at, right? As we get into Ezra chapter 4, we, we really have just seen a picture of revival. It's been a, a great thing. It's been an awesome thing. They were committed to the Word of God and to the worship of God. There's revival breaking out here uh, in, the, in, in Israel. And here's the question. If we, if we look back across history, we should be able to see this pattern. What happens after revival occurs so often? And the answer is, well, many good things. Many good things, but also opposition. Right? Revival is, is always followed by opposition. And there's a reason for that. It's because Satan doesn't want revival. right? He doesn't want right worship going on. He wants to thwart that in any way that he can. And throughout history, he always does. The devil will do anything to break revival. So here's the main idea as we head into Ezra 4. We're going to see that kind of opposition uh, rear its head. And we're not going to see the resolution of that until next week. We're just going to get stuck in the opposition today. But the message of the chapter is really this. Knowing that opposition to God's work and God's people is a constant reality. Okay? When you know that, it helps us to stand firm. Enduring ungodly resistance for God's glory and the preservation of the church. I think you could say that so much of the Bible has this main idea in mind. Uh, so much of the New Testament has this idea in mind as much as the Old Testament. When you know that opposition comes, just that knowledge helps the church to stand in faith. Trusting God for the preservation of His people, for the ongoing work of the Gospel. God wins, right? But we need to go into it with the right realistic knowledge that opposition comes. Okay? So that's the main idea of the text this morning. Now before we get into it, uh, I'll, let me tell you a little something about Ezra chapter 4 uh, that we'll get into it a little bit more as we, as we progress, but the, the chapter does not flow chronologically. Okay, Everything else that we've looked at so far in Ezra has. It's just sort of been a history of that first group of returnees in the 530s B.C. Uh, when we get to Ezra 4 here, we see... The, the start of the chapter is at that same time period. But as we get to verse 6, there's 24 verses. We get to verse 6, there's a flash forward to about a hundred years later, almost a hundred years later. Uh, and it's actually the time, that flash forward, it's the time that Ezra is actually there. So far in Ezra's 1 through 3, Ezra himself is writing about what occurred, but he wasn't there yet. He came in a, in a subsequent uh, return. There was several different movements of people returning into the land. Uh, so the middle part of this chapter, right up until the last verse, is a flash forward to Ezra's day, and he's going to use that as an example to help explain what's happening in the current period. Okay, uh, And then the very last verse, chapter uh, 4, verse 24, 
actually flashes back to the present day of the people who are experiencing this. That make sense? It'll make more sense as we go along, but I just want you to kind of get that because you're going to start hearing different kings being named in the reign of this person, the reign of that person, and you're going to be thinking, wait, who's the king right now? Well, he's flash-forwarding a few times throughout the text, okay? So, main idea, knowing opposition, right? The, the outline of the, of the passage really is this. It is discussing the stages of opposition that come. And there are four of them. Four stages of opposition that come. Let's look at them in order. Stage one. Stage one is syncretism, which I'll define in a minute. Syncretism, which is all about diluting the movement, right? Diluting the purity of worship. Uh, look at verses one through three. It says, now when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the returned exiles were building a temple to the Lord, the God of Israel, they approached Zerubbabel and the heads of fathers' houses and said to them, let us build with you, for we worship your God as you do. And we've been sacrificing to him ever since the days of Esarhaddon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. But Zerubbabel, Yeshua, and the rest of the heads of the fathers' houses in Israel said to them, You have nothing to do with us in building a house to our God. But we alone will build to the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. Okay, stop there. Look up for a second. Now, at first reading, this seems like really getting off on the wrong foot with your new neighbors, right? They've just come back into the land. Again, there are people there, the peoples of the land, uh, which we saw in chapter 3. Uh, and they come to them and they say, hey, we want to help. You're building the temple? We'll, we'll chip in, right? Which seems like, and I, I'm, sure, I'm sure it was, a kind offer, right? And, and frankly, at this stage of Israel's existence, they've just gotten back. Everything's broken. Everything's desolate. They're, they're still not settled. Uh, it's probably needed help, right? Somebody comes, your neighbor comes and says, hey, let me help you. Uh, it, it feels rude to do what they did and said, no, you can't have any part of this, right? It seems rude. That's not how you make friends and influence people, right? I, I, I was reminded of, of uh, when I arrived, uh, when, when my family moved here to Chicago, uh, which is about seven and a half years ago now. And I remember, I'll never forget it. I remember pulling my moving truck down the alley and it was this massive moving truck, the biggest one you could get. It had a car behind it with, and it was packed to the gills full of stuff. And, uh, and I, and packing it, by the way, back on the other end, which was in Arizona, was a bear, right? So pulling into the alley, I, I recall as I got through here, there was like, I don't know how many, but it felt like 50 people from the church. And those of you who were there, you might remember this too. Everybody was standing there waving at me, and I was like, it was awesome, right? And, and they were there to help. They were there to unpack the truck and to welcome me, which was wonderful. But I, I, was, I was thinking about that this week. Could you imagine what it would have been like if I had gotten out of the truck and all those 50 people are waving and they're like, we're, we're here to help you. And I, and I said to them, no, this is my stuff. That's my apartment. This is my stuff. You have no part of this. Get out of here. I don't want you touching my stuff. How would that have gone over, right? Again, probably it would have been fired very quickly. 
and, and certainly wouldn't have made any friends. So that, that's kind of how this feels. That's kind of how this feels. What is going on here? Why the stern rejection of help from these folks? Well, it's important to look at. And by the way, this first point is going to feel real long. It is kind of long. Uh, we're going to spend the most time on this, all right? Uh, but let, let, let's dig into that a little bit. What's going on here? We, we talked about the surrounding peoples of the land mentioned here already in chapter 3. And we said, you know, these were Moabites, Edomites, uh, Samaritans, uh, Ashdodites, right? The, the peoples of, of the land that had been there all along. These were the same kinds of folks, originally at least, that the, the first exodus under Moses had failed to expel. That was what they were supposed to do. They didn't do that. Uh, so there were some, there were, there were these folks that were still there. Uh, but there's, there's a difference to this group of people. They're from those same regions. Uh, but, but we can learn something about them if we consult 2 Kings chapter 17. And you don't have to turn there. But let me give you a bit of a, of a background there and I'll put some of it on the screen. So I, I mentioned before that the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom of Israel had broken into two. The northern kingdom was Israel. The southern was called Judah. And they were conquered by two different empires. The northern kingdom was conquered by the Assyrians. And so when 2 Kings 17, we get a picture of what, what happened when the Assyrians conquered them. They pulled the people out and then they repopulated. The king of Assyria at that time and the successing kings would do this. They would repopulate the area with peoples from other lands and other places that they had conquered throughout the world. Right? So they, they want to pull the people out but they don't want to leave the land empty. So they say, well, we need to send somebody back in. We'll send in somebody that we pulled from, you know, Timbuktu over here. And so that, that's what was going on in 2 Kings 17. And, and, and what we're told there is that the people that were brought in to repopulate the land brought in with them their false worship. They brought in with them their idolatry and it did not go well with God. Right? His people were out, but this was still his territory and he he did not look kindly upon that in fact we're told there that he sent lions to kill them so they had this infestation of lions coming in and they recognized hmm i think we might have offended the god of this land so the king of assyria as he's told what's going on he he goes okay we've offended this yahweh let's do this bring back one of the priests the israelite priest that we exiled bring one back to come in and teach these people how to worship this god yahweh the way that yahweh intends to be worshiped and so that's what happened the problem is it didn't fix anything it didn't fix anything because their new worship of yahweh wasn't sincere and so here's what we see in second Kings 17 so one of the priests whom they had carried away from samaria came and lived in bethel and he taught them how they should fear the lord but every nation still made gods of its own and put them in the shrines of the high places that the Samaritans had made. Every nation in the cities in which they lived. Verse 33, so they feared the Lord, kind of, right? but they also served their own gods after the manner of the nations from among whom they had been carried away. So when we get to Ezra chapter 4, and you see these peoples of the lands coming in, these, these quote-unquote helpers, offering to assist the building of the temple, we recognize that, that Zerubbabel and the other fathers are going, no. This is the kind of... When you say we worship the same God as you, 
since the days of Esarhaddon, who was one of these Assyrian kings who practiced this repopulation, they're, they're going, no, you, you really didn't. This is a classic definition. This is the classic definition of syncretism. You say, well, what does syncretism mean? Well, here's a definition. Right? Syncretism is the amalgamation or attempted amalgamation of different religions, cultures, or schools of thought. Uh, so think pluralism. All right, which is something we you should know well. We live in a very pluralistic kind of society. Pluralism is where you've got all kinds of different uh, worship that's accepted and tolerated and, and practiced, right? You've got different cultures, different religions. But syncretism sort of takes that one step further and says that pluralism now bleeds into a, comb a combining. So it's not just that you have lots of different kinds of worship. It starts to blend together and become a... Uh, a, a synced a up, if you will, jumble of idolatry. That's what was happening in Second Kings, right? We worship God, your God, but we're also worshiping our own at the same time. That's what syncretism is. And by the way, syncretism, uh, I think, is, is always a result of, of pluralism. I don't think you can have pluralism without syncretism happening. It just does, right? And this is what we see going on here. So, Zerubbabel's response. Was it rude? No, it wasn't rude. It was actually discerning. Right? It was firm, but it was discerning. Robert Fial points out in his Ezra commentary something I thought was very important. Listen to what he says. He says, we're not dealing with minor and secondary issues, rather with the very heart of the Gospel here. In other words, who is God? And how is He to be worshipped. He says this is not a, a question of people agreeing on fundamental biblical truths and having differences in secondary matters. What's being proposed here is in fact a multi-faith act of cooperation. When I first got here, uh, shortly after the moving truck, I remember getting a letter uh, from an organization here within our neighborhood. It, there, there is a, and still exists, there's a there is a, a sort of a council of, um, of religious association. So different churches and different faiths, uh, they, they, they band, banded together and created this council. And, and one of the things that they do every year is they have a, a joint worship service at Thanksgiving time. Uh, and they, they were writing to me and say, hey, you know, we hear you're new here, welcome. And they invited me to come and, and us and you to come and participate in this Joint worship service, and and I and I know that the intent was really friendly, um, but I had to very politely say no. And it was for the same kind of reason, right? I, I I'm thinking in my mind, I know the Old Testament well enough to know that God doesn't look kindly upon that kind of thing. You know, it's, it's one thing to know your neighbors. It's another thing to come together in a worship service and say, let's pray together to the same God when it's not really the same God. Right? <clears throat> and so they asked again the following year, and I had to politely say no, and they stopped asking. Right? Similar situation, I think. Was I being rude? Maybe it was interpreted that way. I hope not. Uh, but it was a, it was, it was trying to be discerning. Now let's talk about that because I think that's an important thing. We're dealing with people. Right? We're dealing with, with our neighbors here. They're dealing with their neighbors here. 
And yet it's significant that Ezra opens the whole scene in chapter 4 by describing those who offered help as adversaries. Right? Did you catch that? He calls them adversaries. Now, again, this is a spiritual appraisal. And it's backed up by the facts, which we'll see in, in a minute. Um, here's, what, here's what Zerubbabel and the other fathers are recognizing. You're not really desiring to worship with us. What's behind this, even if you don't know it, what's behind this is a, is a desire to influence the worship in a worldly way. Uh, and those motives, those, the impurity of those motives, again, is revealed by their response to being told no. We'll see that in a minute. They don't take it very well, right? Uh, now here's what I want us to, to, to focus on. And I think this is so important, so biblical. We know when we read Scripture that Satan is the great adversary. Right? But when we, were, when we read words like adversary in the Bible, we should be able to look right through it and see who's behind it. Satan is the great adversary and it is his prerogative to manipulate people. That's how he operates. And Derek Thomas in his commentary puts it like this. It's his, it's his uh, ability to manipulate what he calls unwitting people. Using them like pawns in a chess game. Which is to say, they may not know that that's what's happening. Right? I don't think that the people here uh, thought of themselves as agents of Satan when they offered to help. But the, a spiritual appraisal of Ezra as he writes this and as Zerubbabel as he says no is a recognition that that's exactly what's going on here. Now what does the Scripture tell us about the way we deal with opposition to the adversary. Well, I mentioned earlier Ephesians chapter 6. It's critical for us to remember who's behind the attacks. Who's behind it? It's Satan, right? It is the schemes of the devil, we're told there. And we're told in Ephesians 6, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Paul knows the opposition is spiritual. And again, I don't think these people knew that they were being used as pawns. I, 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 I would guess that they had true intentions of being helpful. But here's the thing that we have to get out of the text. Zerubbabel's response, the message he's sending to them and ultimately sending to us is this. God's worship cannot be mixed with worldly influence. It cannot be mixed. Despite seemingly good in, uh, intentions, God's worship cannot be mixed with worldly influence. Now, I said as I opened the, the, the sermon that this, this is a hard text because it can be offensive, and this is where it gets offensive, right? This is where it gets offensive. In a pluralistic culture like what was existing here in Ezra, which, by the way, was very similar to the culture uh, that the New Testament writers were writing into in the early church. Very pluralistic culture. And, and again, very much like our own. In, in a pluralistic culture like that, rejecting that pluralism can be seen as intolerant. Right? It can be seen as bigoted. People might see it as, as hateful. They might see it as exclusionary. And if that's the case, listen, for us, it's hard to stand 
on a conviction like that when you know it's offensive to people, right? It's hard. But it's important. It's of utter importance that God's people never allow ungodly, unbiblical thought or practice to invade to corrupt the purity and the worship of the church. You, you, you can slap God's name on something. You can say, you know, we're just going to add a little Jesus to this, but if it's a worldly philosophy or an idolatry, it's a damnable thing. So these are conversations that we might have to have with our neighbors. These are conversations that we might have to have with others who say, look, we're, we're, we worship the same God. Let's do this. They might say, well, you know, we, we might not view the Bible as inerrant or authoritative in all modern issues. I guess you do. We, 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 we don't do that, but we still worship the same God. And we must politely say, but with unwavering conviction, no, you don't. And, and you cannot bring that kind of syncretistic, idolatrous worship in here. They say, well, well, we believe in the Gospel, but, but we think it promotes health and wealth and prosperity to those who just have enough faith. But we're all about the Gospel. We worship the same God and we must politely say, with unwavering conviction, no, you don't. And we can't have that kind of syncretistic, idolatrous worship here. Well, we believe God is love just as you do, and therefore it doesn't matter what path you take to find Him. Jesus, Buddha, Muhammad, your own spirituality. Look, at the end of the day, we all worship the same God. And we say politely but with conviction, no, you don't. And we can't have that kind of syncretistic worship in here. Well, we think the Bible is, is, is archaic on things like sexual ethics and our cultural understanding has evolved from there. The, the Bible's kind of culturally outdated. But we can still worship the same God. And, and again, we say politely but with unwavering conviction, no, you don't. And we can't have that kind of syncretistic, idolatrous worship here. That's hard to do, isn't it? But it's important to do. It's necessary to do. And, and look, we've got to be honest about why that's offensive to people. Okay? We've got to be honest about that. Because it's not just a, a rejection of ideas or beliefs that gets communicated. Usually it comes across, I think to them, like is a rejection of you. Right? This is a rejection of who you are. Now, I want to say this. We got to explain why that's not the case. Okay? That's important too. We've got to explain why that's not the case. It mustn't ever come across that God's people are rejecting other people. We're to reject worldly philosophy and idolatry. And we have to recognize that unfortunately the nature of idolatry is that it deeply affects identity. Right? That's what Romans 1 tells us. 
Idolatry deeply affects our identity. And so it, it is going to sound to, to somebody if we say, look, we reject your philosophy, that we're saying we reject you. But that's a, that's a result of the idolatry of their heart. It shouldn't be the result of what we communicate about who they are. Let's understand this. Let's guard against that kind of hateful bigotry that can happen, right? But let's recognize that it's important. It matters to stand on truth. And here's why. When God's Word is diluted in any way, when the Gospel of Jesus Christ is diluted, when worship is diluted, and I say that worship according to the Bible, according to the Word, according to the Gospel of Jesus Christ, when that happens, it is a death sentence upon everyone involved. It brings death to the church and it brings death to culture because there's no more path. There's no more right hope put in front of them. There's, there's no other way to salvation but the unadulterated Gospel of Jesus Christ. There's no other way to know God than the, than the clear, unadulterated, God-breathed Word. There's no other way. As I mentioned earlier, what, that's what Paul tells us in Galatians 1. Any other gospel is not a gospel at all. So it's so important for the people of God to say, we can't do that. At risk of offending you, we can't allow that. It's not good for you or the world or us. And Ezra wants us to see this. Ezra wants us to hold to it. And to know that if we do, it's going to bring opposition. Jesus echoes that, doesn't He? The world hated me, it's going to hate you. It's, it's just truth. So know it. Now, I mentioned there's four stages of opposition here, and I want to cover the other three briefly because they're patterns that come up over and over again throughout the course of the history of God's people. And it's why I think Ezra goes into an expanded explanation of their history here. Uh, this, this speaks to the, the chronological jumps that he's about to make. He's saying, look, this happens all the time. It happens at different times. But it happens the same way over and over again. And so we're going to look at that. But again, let me st stress this one more time. We need to see that this is Satan's work. That pattern is ongoing because Satan's opposition to God's work and God's people is ongoing. And again, the people involved in carrying out his schemes are often unwitting. Though sinfully culpable, they're unwitting. They're pawns. Let's look at how the pawns get played here by the adversary. Verse 4. So again, Zerubbabel just said, no, you can't help us. Verse 4, Then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build. And they bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purpose all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. All right, so here's step two. It started off with syncretism. Now it's moved into what we'll call sort of insinuation. It's now this, this, uh, this discouragement uh, that's going on, this disparaging. And here's where we see the real motives of the people. This is why we can say with confidence they weren't really interested in worship. They were interested in influence. Right? If their intent was really to worship, they would have been amicable to Zerubbabel's rebuke because it was rooted in the truth of the Word, right? But they weren't. They were just angered by what he had to say. 
And so we see their motive was not really one of worship, but rather one of control and influence. And that tells us something about the heart behind syncretistic worship. It's not really about God. It's about me. Okay? And so they turn to discouragements. And they're, they're trying to break the will here of the Israelites. And we're not told exactly what they said. Uh, we're told that it was ongoing. This was something that lasted for a long time. And we can imagine what it, what it might have included. And, and I say that because, I, again, these patterns play themselves out over and over again. We can think about you know, what we see in our own day. What, what kinds of discouragements might have been thrown at these people? Right? Maybe this. Why build this temple? Why bother? You know, you guys are spending all this time and, and effort doing this. It's not going to last. You realize that, like, you guys are weak, that, you know, these, these powers that be that took them down, they'll take them down again. Why do this? Maybe they were saying things like, you know, look, you're exclusionary. You've, you've really offended us here. You, you guys are a bunch of hateful bigots, right? Maybe they were saying things like, you know, this, this loving God that you talk about doesn't really seem marked out in the way that you guys have pushed us aside. You're on the wrong side of history. Who knows what was said, right? But we do know this. It was aimed to cause God's people to quit. Just give up, right? The, the adversary's work is to try to get them to quit. To question. What are we doing? Why are we doing it? You can almost hear echoes here of the serpent in the garden, right? Did God really say... And besides this, we see also a ramping up of syncretistic control and influence in the form of bribery. That's what it says here. They begin to, to try to entice people to leave the work by offering them something else. Something maybe better. The promise of reward, if you will, for compromise. Right? It'll cost you something if you continue, but if you stop, we'll give you some stuff. We'll give you riches. We'll give you money. We'll give you whatever. Right? And again, you hear echoes. You hear echoes here of Satan's temptations of Christ in the wilderness. Just bow down and I'll give you all the kingdoms before you. Right? That's how we can read through this and see that, that behind it, it lies the accuser and the adversary. And, and this went on for decades. Okay? Verse 5 talks about how this was from the days of Cyrus to the days of Darius. We're talking about a, a length of period uh, of time that, that covered decade after decade after decade. But when it wasn't as effective as the discouragers had hoped, they changed their tactics once again. And we see another stage. Stage three, now they're moving to Intimidation. Right? And intimidation is where here we're seeing them erecting some material obstacles. It's not just verbal. It's, they're going to put some real obstacles in the path. Look at verse 6. And in the reign of Ahasuerus, in the beginning of his reign, they wrote an accusation against the inhabitants of Judah and Jerusalem. In the days of Artaxerxes, Bishlam and Mithridath and Tabil and the rest of their associates wrote to Artaxerxes, king of Persia, and the letter was written in Aramaic and translated. And Rahum the commander and Shimshai the scribe wrote a letter against Jerusalem to Artaxerxes the king as 
follows. Now, let me, let me step back again. Now, we've just jumped into this, this time warp here, okay? Uh, there's actually two letters that are being talked about here. In verse 6, we see one letter that was written uh, closer to the, the actual time period that we've been in. And then, and then Ezra jumps ahead to another letter that was written to uh, uh, Artaxerxes. Uh, and, and you go, well, why, why is he doing that? Well, let me, let me explain. There, there's a couple things. Uh, first, maybe they didn't have a, maybe he didn't have access to the original letter, but he did have access to the words that were written in the letter that he, he received, right? That he, that happened in his day. And so he's just saying, look, these were similar. I know what this letter said. The other one is just like it. Let me tell you what this one said. It could be that what he's doing is he's simply saying to the people here, look, this is the same old thing. Remember that letter we just got in our day, Ezra? We're talking about the mid-400s B.C. That letter in the early 500s B.C., same thing. Very similar letter. Okay, uh, But I think what he's probably doing more than anything is just helping his contemporaries to understand, look, this thing that was experienced then and what he was experiencing in his day, which we'll read about when we get to Nehemiah, there's nothing new. It just happens again and again. All right? Verse 11. This is a copy of the letter that they sent. To Artaxerxes the king, your servants, the men of the province beyond the river, send greeting. And now be it known to the king that the Jews who came up from you to us have gone to Jerusalem. They are rebuilding that rebellious and wicked city. They're finishing the walls and repairing the foundations. Now be it known to the king that if this city is rebuilt and the walls finished, they will not pay tribute, custom, or toll, and the royal revenue will be impaired. Now because we eat the salt of the palace and it's not fitting for us to witness the king's dishonor, therefore we send and inform the king in order that search may be made in the book of the records of your fathers, you'll find in this book of the records and learn that this city is a rebellious city, hurtful to kings and provinces, and that sedition was stirred up in it from old. That's why this city was laid waste. We make known to the king that if this city is rebuilt and its walls finished, you will then have no possessions in the province beyond the river. All right? Now, first of all, these accusations that they're making are ridiculous accusations on many fronts, right? What are they saying? King, right, of the biggest empire in the world, you you need to know that your whole kingdom is under threat by this group of rabble-rousers in in Jerusalem who have nothing. (laughs) And if they stop paying tribute to you, if they don't pay their taxes, man, the whole thing, the whole system's going to fall apart. Now, is that true? That's ridiculous, right? That's like saying if Rhode Island stops paying into the system, the United States is going to crumble. Really? Right? So there, there, there's these sort of big, you know, exaggerated claims. This wicked and rebellious city, you know, it's going to, it's a threat. Well, that, that's, that's not totally untrue, right? But, but it's being oversold here. And, and the point is this, the adversary is erecting material barriers, this time in the form of legal action against God's people. If the discouragements aren't enough to bring them down, let's start talking about laws. Let's get the government on the case here. Let's see if we can put some pressure 
on this thing to quell it once and for all. We've got to convince the government that this group of people, God's people, are a threat to stability. They're a threat to peace. Right? They're a threat to society. And, and when the fear campaign works, and in this case, it, uh, it did, we move on to the, the fourth stage, which is persecution. And persecution can basically be summed like, like this. It's, it's a stoppage. Right? It's, it's a foot down. Stop by force. Look at verse 17. Then the king sent an answer to Rahum the commander and Shimshai the scribe and the rest of their associates who lived in Samaria and in the rest of the province beyond the river. Greeting. And now the letter that you sent to us has been plainly read before me. And I made a decree and search has been made and it has been found that this city from old has risen against kings and that rebellion and sedition have been made in it. And mighty kings have been over Jerusalem who ruled over the whole province beyond the river to whom, uh, excuse me, to whom tribute, custom, and toll were paid. Therefore, make a decree that these men be made to cease and that this city be not rebuilt until a decree is made by me. And take care not to be slack in this matter. Why should damage grow to the hurt of the king? And then when the copy of King Artaxerxes' letter was read before Rahom and Shimshai the scribe and their associates, they went in haste to the Jews at Jerusalem and by force and power made them cease. Stop. Right? There's a, there's a break now. It, it seems like it's worked. It's been going on for decades, this sort of chipping away. And now you've got a legal decree that says it's over. Uh, by the way, this uh, we, we look at these kings, that Artaxerxes and then Ahasuerus before him. Xerxes is another name for him. So you have Xerxes, Ahasuerus, followed by Artaxerxes. Uh, the first guy, Xerxes or Ahasuerus, was the king, if you read the book of Esther, that was him, right? And then Artaxerxes was, I think it was his brother who followed suit. So we're talking again a long period of time after the initial work on the temple began. It just kept kind of going downhill until finally the, the squelch is put on. And now we get back chronologically to the time of verses 1-6, to the current day of the rebuilding of the temple under Zerubbabel. Look at verse 24. Then the work on the house of God that is in Jerusalem stopped and it ceased until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. The letter we just read was trying to stop the wall. Again, that's being built in the book of Nehemiah. That came to a stop. Flash backwards back to the building of the temple, which is where we've been in Ezra so far, and we're told a similar letter was sent, and it worked, and this work was stopped. So persecution by force stops the work. This is a sad transition, really, from where we were a chapter ago. Ezra 3, we, we see revival, right? We see, we see movement here, building, right? And, and, and now we, we look back and we say, that, that feels like that's the distant past. I mean, these people are, we're talking about decades of this. That revival just feels like, man, forever ago. If they even can still remember it. Revivals turn to persecution. And the people and the plans of God looks like are stopped dead in their tracks. 
By the way, this work stoppage lasted for 20 years. 20 years. Looks like it's dead, right? But that's only partly true. Right? The people are at a standstill for sure. But the plan of God is not. It never ever is. And all we have to do is turn the page and you'll see that. Right? You get to chapter 5, God's plan's still in effect, right? But that's not yet for today. That's next week. Right? We're stuck in today. We're, we're, we're sitting in the midst of the decades upon decades that move into a 20-year work stoppage here. And we can say, what's going on? We, we might rightly ask the people, is God gone again? Is, this, is, the, is the plan of God thwarted? Is persecution the end for us? Well, no, it's not the end because we look back through the course of church history and we know that the saying is true that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church, right? God's work doesn't stop. But it is good for us to stop and take a little bit of application here. And so here's all I want to say about that. We are living in days that are somewhere along that spectrum. Okay, We are. I could preach this sermon at any point in time throughout the course of church history and say, we're living somewhere on the spectrum. The question is, where are we? Well, make that assessment for yourself, okay? But the pattern shows itself over and over again. Revival followed by opposition. And in some places around the world, and sometimes in history, it gets all the way to persecution. And revival often breaks out again, right? And we see the pattern unfold. Main idea. Main idea. Knowing that opposition to God's work and God's people is a constant reality helps us stand firm. You're always going to be on this spectrum, folks. We are always going to be on this spectrum. Know it and stand firm. Stand firm. Endure ungodly resistance for the glory of God and the preservation of the church. Are you discouraged this morning? You know what one of the big plagues of, of, of evangelicalism in, in Western society is? Is that people look on, along this stage, they, they figure out where we are, <laughs> right? And then they just get totally discouraged. They start operating out of fear. They start seeing everything around them as adversarial. And, and here's the thing, that might be true, Right? But if, if, if we're only discouraged, we've forgotten the point. It's just that we know that opposition comes so that we would stand firm knowing that the gospel is stronger. It can't be beat. Jesus defeated the adversary. The cross of Christ is finished work and we stand on the other side of that victory. We will rise again. Revival is in effect ongoing since the resurrection of Jesus Christ, even though these stages will repeat themselves, revival always comes. And if we don't see it in our lifetime, know this, we'll all see it when we stand face to face before the returned and victorious conquering King Jesus when the devil is thrown into the lake. We need to know that opposition will always come, but Jesus builds His church and the gates of hell will not stand against it.
Amen? Father, thank you for your word. And we ask you to shape us by it. We ask you, Lord, to to help us to appraise things spiritually so that we're not afraid. And we know that, Lord, suffering is part of the Christian life. We're called to suffer as Christ suffered. And in that, Lord, there's purification for us. These stages are not just just victimization periods of time for the church. They're, They're part of Your sovereign plan. And we know that, Lord, to bring purity in the church. So help us to expect it, to... to to embrace it, but at the end of the day, to run back to right worship of You, dependent on You, by Your Word, no syncretism, clinging to Jesus, the victor, so that we would stand. And I pray very specifically that You would protect this church family. Guard us, Lord, by Your Word. Strengthen us in the midst of wherever we may fall on that, those stages of opposition throughout our lives. Just guard us with our eyes fixed on the victor, on Jesus. And help us, Lord, not to treat our neighbors as if they're the adversary. Help us to remember that, that our battle is against not flesh and blood, but against the principalities and the powers at work. But at the same time, to stand even when it's offensive, even when it costs us something. Because we know that it's good for the world that the church proclaims the truth. So we just cling to You in that. We trust You for that. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.